Welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Don't we have a good Savior? Isn't our God awesome and worthy to be praised? Amen. 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 While we are standing, why don't you go ahead and meet me in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, as we finish up our Built for Better series this afternoon. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. If you're there, say amen. Amen. It's also on, on the screen. We're going to read odds and evens. I'll read the odds. You'll read the evens. We'll read the last verse together. Amen. Amen. Here is the word of the Lord. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And who can bring an accusation against God's elect? For God is the one who justifies. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I simply want to speak from the theme this afternoon God is for us. God is for us. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, we come with thankful hearts, ready to receive your words, ready to receive the promises that you have given to us, that are ours through union with your Son. So God, we thank you for all that was accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ at Calvary on our behalf when he died in our place. And so, God, we just simply say thank you. We say thank you for the work of salvation. Thank you for the promises that are ours. Thank you for your precious Holy Spirit that resides in us and is the seal for us until the day that you will ultimately and fully redeem us to yourself. God, we say thank you. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus Christ's name, we do pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God is... For us, the U.S. Constitution's Fifth Amendment contains a clause called double jeopardy, which says that no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Simply put, it means that once you have been tried for a crime, 
You cannot be tried for the same crime using the same evidence a second time. The Apostle Paul has been methodically building the case that those who have been justified by faith have already been declared innocent. That declaration has real consequence for the life of the believer. As Paul stands before us, he turns to his jury of peers and begins to make his closing argument. And he writes these words, this sentence, this question that starts off this section that ends the argument that he has been building. And he says, what then are we to say to these things? Now, the natural question that you might have is, Paul, what things are you talking about? Well, if you've been following along with his frame of reference, his mindset, and what he's been writing down, the argument that he has been trying to prove over the last few chapters, you would realize that Paul began this theological construct back in chapter 5. And he said in chapter 5 that those who have believed through faith in Jesus Christ, they have been made right with God. And they now have peace with God. They've been justified. He continues on in chapter six, and he says that we are no longer slaves to sin, for you have the right and the authority based on what God has already done and accomplished in your life to say yes to righteousness and no to sin. You have been made free from the power of sin. He goes on in chapter seven. He says, since we have died to sin, we've been released from the law. The demands of the law are no longer resting heavy upon our shoulders, which brought uh, knowledge of sin. We've been reconciled to God. And then he gets here to chapter eight and he says, man, by the spirit, the proof that the spirit is in your life, the presence and the participation, the actionable uh, steps that you see happening based on the spirit's work in your life have proved that you've been adopted into the family of God. And that you receive all the benefits from being an heir with Christ. So when Paul says, what are we to say to these things? Paul is not just merely talking about how we like to cherry pick out of uh, 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 verses 37 and 38 from the previous chapter or 28, 29. He says, uh, for all things work together for good. Yeah, Paul is referring to that, but that's not all that he's talking about. He says, what do you Now that I've presented you with this case, now that I've presented you with this information, what do you say to the fact that God has justified you by faith? What do you say to the fact that he's now freed you from the power of sin so that you can walk in freedom? What do you say to the fact that you've been adopted and made sons of God and now heirs of God in Christ? What do you say to these things? He goes on and he says, Paul says that that if God is for us, Who can be against us? Notice that he answers his question by asking another question. What do we say these things? Well, what we say to these things, how we summarize, how we feel about what I've just written is simply this. If God is for you, who can be against you? So when Paul says these things, Paul is acknowledging that he already knows the answer. Paul is not merely just asking this question because he needs us to verify the answer for us. Paul is showing off his rhetorician skills right now by using uh, the the literary literary, uh, tool of a rhetorical question. And a rhetorical question is a question that, that does not elicit information but seeks to advance an argument. 
And what Paul here is doing is by asking this question, he's answering and conveying the information to us that he already knows what the answer is. Simply put, when Paul asked the question, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? He knows that his audience knows and that they know that he knows that the answer is nobody. It's a resounding nobody. If God is on your side, if God, the creator of heaven and earth, is for you, if God has already justified you and sanctified you and will glorify you and has adopted you, if God is behind you on your side, what is there that anybody else can say? What adversary do you have that can contend with God? Who can oppress you that can stop the hand of almighty God? What do you have going on in your life that you think God can't solve or can't handle if God is for you? Who can be against you? But Pastor Kurt, my life experiences don't seem to match up with what you're telling me is happening here in this text. You keep telling me that if God is for me, there's nobody against me. But what about the things that I feel daily that are against me? What about all the people in my family that are close to me that, that are always lying on me and treating me bad? What about the fact that I can't get my finances straight no matter how hard I work? I'm working three jobs, Pastor Kurt. It feels like the world's against me. What about our justice system? What about the inequity in our school system? What about the fact that my body has been ravaged with sickness? What about the fact that people close to me keep dropping like flies and they're too young to die? What do you say about that, God? What do you say about that, Pastor Kurt? I think the point that Paul is trying to make here is that God, if God is on your side, that there is no opposition that truly matters. It's not that there won't be opposition. It's not that there won't be difficulty. But when God is on your side, there is nothing that cannot stay his hand. When God decides to do something in your life, there's nothing that can stop him. And even when he allows you to go through things that seem too heavy for you to bear, guess what? He will not allow you to be crushed because there's nothing that can crush God when God is for you. Who can be against you? God shows his for usness. In verse 32, when he goes on, he says, he did not even spare his own son. I, maybe it's just me, but it's a little quiet in here. And I don't want to force you to say anything. You don't have to say anything. I'm not up here to perform for you. But, but you just missed what Paul just wrote. That God is for you, and the demonstration of his for you-ness is that he did not spare his own son. Maybe, maybe it didn't elicit a response because you don't remember who his son is. Maybe it didn't elicit a response because you think his son is something like your son. Maybe it didn't elicit a response because you really don't understand the depths of what had to be accomplished for God to save you in the first place. Maybe it didn't elicit a response because you thought you were good enough to be accepted by God on your own merit. Maybe you just forgot who God's son actually is. Says he did not even spare his own son. The beautiful thing about that word spare is it brings to mind a, a little story in Genesis chapter 2. 22 about a guy named Abraham and his wife named Sarah and 
They wanted to have a child, but they were struggling with infertility. And if you thought infertility was, was too much to overcome when it came to childbearing, then just remember that they were also very old. Uh, the, the Bible says that she was past childbearing years, which means, naturally speaking, she wouldn't have been able to have children anyway. And for some strange reason, God approached them and said that, that, that because of Abraham's faithfulness and, and, and his faith in God uh, and the righteousness that now was dispensed to him, that was transferred to him, he was going to have a son. And that son was going to be the son of promise. Now, you know what happens when God makes promise to us, but we feel like it's taking a little bit too long. We start to take things into our own hands. And we start to circumvent what God has said would happen to try to manipulate and manufacture the blessings of God on our own. But who can manufacture what God has in store for you on your own? I don't know what it is about us that makes us think that we can do what God can do in our lives and gives us the impatience to depend more on ourselves than depend on what God has said that he would already do. Anyway, that's a side point. But 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 God said that he would have a son. They didn't. Uh, 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 they went and had Hagar have a baby. And God said, no, that's not the one. Toss him aside. And then they have this son, Isaac. See, even, even through all of your stupidity and your impatience and your lack of faith, guess what God does? God still keeps his promises. But, 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 but that's, that's not even necessarily the point. But, but, but God takes his super and meets up with their natural and out comes a bumbling baby boy. And, and, and this boy named Isaac was the son of promise. But wouldn't you know, ain't God funny like that? You see, y'all don't know if you if you ain't walked with God in a while, if you ain't never been through through nothing with God, then you don't realize that God is a little bit of a jokester. Sometimes he'll promise you stuff and then give it to you and then and then take it back. And, and, and so so imagine being older in age and beyond childbearing years and God promised you a son and then he gives you that son and then he says, I want you to sacrifice that son to me. Maybe God hasn't asked anything of value from you lately. He says, I want you to take your son, your, your only son. And I want you to walk him up the hill. And I want you to take some wood and place him on the wood. And I want you to sacrifice him. Does that sound familiar? And, and, and Isaac, I can imagine walking up the side of the hill with his father. And he says, Daddy, I, I, I see the wood. And, and, and I see the fire. But where... Is the sacrifice. Now, I don't know the type of relationship that you had with your dad. But I don't know if I would be trusting my dad if he told me that we got to go make an offering to the Lord. And I saw wood and I saw fire and I was the only one around. But Abraham, because of the faith that he has and God laid his son bound him and laid him on the wood. And as he began to drive the knife through Isaac's chest, the spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord cries out and says, I, I, I don't do that. You've shown yourself to be faithful. You've proved yourself that you trust God and what God has, has told you. And guess what Abraham did? He named that spot. God will provide. See, every once in a while when, when God shows up out of nowhere where you thought you were going to have to go through some mess and then he shows up on your behalf. See, you, you need to start naming some events in your life. 
You, 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 you need to start naming some events. God will provide. You, you know, uh, why you celebrate June 13th every year? Because that's the day God provided. Uh, you, why you celebrate August 32nd? Ain't no August 32nd. I was trying to see if you was paying attention. Why you celebrate August 31st? He said, because that's the day that the Lord showed up on my behalf and redeemed something that I thought was unredeemable. And so Abraham calls that place uh, uh, the Lord will redeem. And he says, because you have not withheld or spared your son. Paul is making mention. He says, he says, what I want you to do is I, I want you to, to, to realize it and know that this story of redemption that is played out in the person of Jesus Christ has been a previewed long before he was ever born. See, when Isaac was here, Isaac was just a he was a he was a trailer to what was going to happen with Jesus Christ. And where Isaac was was the only son of the father. Jesus was also the only son of his father. But where there was a ram in the bush on Isaac's behalf, Jesus was also the ram in the bush on behalf of us. And so Paul here is trying to elicit understanding from us that when when it says that God is for us, God is so for us that he would not even spare his son. Spun his son, the word who was with him in the beginning, his son who left eternity and the treasures and the glory of heaven, who left being worshipped day and night by all of creation to come down here and be spat on and be beaten. He said, he said, he said, this is how much God loves you. That at the cross, he would open up the vault of heaven and give you the best treasure that he had. That's how much he loved you, the unlovable. If you don't think you're unlovable, then all you had to do was, that means you skipped chapter five, where it said that, that while you were yet a sinner, Christ gave his only son. While you were an enemy of God, he did not even spare his own son. He says, God is... He's so for you that he did not even spare, but offered him up for us all. And he says, if, if, if God has already given, this is past tense, if God has already given all of the best that he had in Jesus Christ, how will he not also give you anything else? This, this, should, be, this should be convicting for us. What, what are you worried about? What keeps you up at night that you think God can't handle? If, if you really believe that God had already given you the best that he had, what's a mortgage payment? If God has already given you the best that, that, that he had, what, what, is, what is a little bit of stress? God has already given you the best that he had. What, 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 what does it mean for him to heal sickness? So what, what, what is there that's causing so much worry about what God can and can't do in our lives if he's already given us the best that he has? Goes on, he says, he says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? I love that Paul is just he's just rattling off rhetorical questions that he knows the people of God should know the answer to. He says, who can bring a charge against you? For God is the one that justifies. If God has already justified you, then who can say anything 
The, the accuser can't say anything. Because guess what? Guess what? Guess what the enemy's doing? Guess what Satan's doing right now? He's, he's, he's up by the throne of God. and he's, he's bringing to mind the sins that you were doing last night. God, you going to let them come in here and worship you like this? How great is our God? Worthy is the Lamb. You going to let them sing all that stuff? You seen what they was doing last night. You seen what their heart posture was like this morning when they got up? They always irritable and irritated. Talk about people behind their back. You know they don't give like they supposed to. They selfish with their time and their money. You know they don't, they don't, they're not the best workers at work. You see how sexually immoral they are? You see how much they, they love to not tell the truth, the whole truth, but only the pieces that make them look good? He said, he said God, you see all this. How are you just going to let them worship you like that? Paul here is writing, and he's saying, he's saying, but you've already been justified. You, like God has already put you in right standing. Even with all your mess, he put you in right standing. So he, who can accuse you? Who, who can accuse you? Paul says there's, there, there's nobody. And, and who is the one who condemns? For Jesus has already died. But more than that, he's risen. Here Paul is alluding to Isaiah chapter 50 where the prophet writes, The one who vindicates me is near. For who will contend with me? Let us confront each other. Who has a case against me? Let him come near. For in truth, the Lord God will help me. Who will condemn me? Paul's point is not that nothing will ever try to prosecute us in the court of God's justice, but that the prosecution will always be unsuccessful. For God has already justified and already pronounced that the verdict of innocent over your life can't be reversed. So then he says, who can separate us from the love of God? Can affliction? No. Can distress? No. Can persecution? No. Can famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's a resounding no. Paul here is, is preaching from example. Paul here is pulling from, from his personal experience that he knows that none of these circumstances measure up to the love of God. Nothing that you go through is strong enough or all-encompassing enough to take you out of God's all-ever-grasping all love that he has the stranglehold over your life in. There's nothing you can go through in this life that will remove you from the hand of God, the love of God, the favor of God. And that should be a comfort to you when you go through difficulty. That there's, the, this situation does not define what God thinks about me. Guess what? Even your sin doesn't separate you from the love of God. So Paul just begins to list here all of the things that he's been through. Many of the things that he's been through that we've never been through. To say resoundingly that, that, that even based on my personal experience, God's love has such a stranglehold that even death can't loosen its grip. He says, if, when God is on your side... He says, he said, if God is on your side, then I'm persuaded that neither, neither death, nor life, nor angels, rulers, things present, powers, heights, depths, 
Nothing in creation will be able to separate us. Paul says, just in case you thought that I was just referring to the physical world. He said, even the spiritual world can't do anything to separate you from the love of God. I know you're afraid of what the other side may be, but death can't separate you. Death, see, the love, the love of Christ over your life through Jesus Christ covers the gap that death creates. So that when you go from death to new life, God's love holds you there, sustains you there, and brings you to himself. So there's nothing, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. So why do you doubt that God cares? Why do you doubt that God hears? Why do you assume that God doesn't see what you're going through right now? That God has forgotten about you? He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. See, it's this assurance of God's for usness that allows Paul to conclude that there's nothing in heaven or in earth, physical or invisible. There's nothing spiritual, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Because the love of God is what justifies us. The love of God is... What frees us from the tyranny of sin. The love of God is what satisfies the demand of the law on our behalf. It's what renews our heart and our mind as the spirit works within us. It's what gives us the confidence to stand in the assurance of our salvation. It's the love of God that promises that everything will work together for our good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, Paul, to answer your question, what do we say to these things? We say the only thing that we can say. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any other words would prove inadequate to describe just how grateful we should be as God's people. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we know and can have confidence that when you are for us, there is no one, nothing that can be against us. Help us, O oh God, to walk in that truth, to believe it not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Because the truth is, sometimes we feel like you're not for us. The circumstances and the situations that we go through in our lives, make us feel and question your love for us. Help us to know that our feelings, when it comes to your love for us and doubting your love for us, are not true. And help us to root our minds and our hearts in your word so that we can believe your word where it says that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. You already gave us the best that heaven had to offer. Why would you withhold any good thing from us? So, Lord, we just, we come with thankful hearts, knowing that the thankfulness that we have for all that you've done, the, the result of that, oh God, 
of true thankfulness is an obedient life. Help us, oh God, to live like the changed people that you say that we are so that we might honor you and bring glory to your name all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder of Passive Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you.